Thanks so much for listening to the Summit Church Hazard podcast. We're in a series through the book of Revelation, and today we are in Revelation 15 and 16, the seven bowl judgment on the first Sunday of Advent. And how does that connect us to not only the first coming of Jesus, but the second coming of Jesus? So let's dive in to today's sermon. We are in the very first Sunday of Advent. And so maybe you're like, what in the world is Advent? Uh, Advent is the season in the church calendar where we celebrate the first coming of Jesus and we remember that Jesus is coming again. And so Advent literally is a word that means waiting. It's what Advent means. It's just a word, you look it up, means waiting. So in the Old Testament, Israel, they were waiting for the Messiah to come. Jesus is born, right? We celebrate that at Christmas. But you and I, we live between the first and second coming of Jesus. We live in this gap. And Jesus, just before he goes back to heaven, Jesus says, listen, I'm coming again. And so what that means for us is that we are waiting. It's not that Israel was waiting and then Christmas happened and boom, now we're not waiting. We're still waiting, for Jesus to come back. And so we're just continuing through the book of Revelation because where we are this morning is a turning point in the book of Revelation because from this moment forward, every week is a clearer picture of the return of Jesus and who we need to be until it happens. All right? Every week is a clearer picture of the return of Jesus and who we need to be until it happens. And today we get the third cycle of judgment. So if you've been tracking with this series uh, for the past nine weeks, we are today in the ninth week of Revelation. All right? What we've seen so far is we saw the seven seal judgments. The seven seals led to the seven trumpet judgments. And those trumpets led to a series of visions that today get us to the seven bowl judgments. Now, if you've been keeping track with Revelation, numbers aren't just numbers, they mean something. And so, so the number seven, we said it, we've said this every week, it shows up. The number seven is the number for perfection. And so remember, remember a couple weeks ago we did 666, the number for, for, for the Antichrist, for Satan. 666 is the number for incompleteness. He always falls short. The number for divine perfection is 777. And so we've had three cycles of seven judgments, seven, seven, seven. These are perfect judgments. In fact, look at, I know you're, we're going to read Revelation 16, but look at 15, verse 1. Revelation 15, 1, look at this. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. These are the last ones. Watch this, last. Because with them, God's wrath is completed. And so, so here we get this, the last of these seven bowl, the last of these judgments. What makes this one different? Just like the seals lead to the trumpets, the trumpets lead to these. This leads to the second coming. So all of these judgments have been history from different vantage points. A lot of history in the past, a lot of things happening in the present, and then things that haven't happened yet in the future. This one today ends with the second coming of Jesus. This one today ends with the Battle of Armageddon. If you're with me, who's heard of the Battle of Armageddon? Raise your hand. Every hand in here goes up, the Battle of Armageddon. It's going to be great when we get there because we're actually going to see that the Battle of Armageddon isn't a battle at all. 
All right? So Revelation 16 is where we are. We're going to read the whole chapter of Revelation 16. It's just 21 verses. But you look like you've eaten enough turkey this week to get you amped for this chapter. Are you ready? If, somebody, if you're ready, say, uh-huh. Some of you are already asleep. You're like, listen, man, it's over, all right? Here we go, Revelation 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl in the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead person, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Stop for a second. Notice as we're reading this, does this sound like the ten plagues of Egypt? Yes, it does, because John's already described some of these like that. He's trying to say, hey, listen, these judgments, if you need something to compare it to, remember how God poured out judgments on Egypt? Right, the ten plagues, compare it to that. This is like that. He's, he's saying you can try to just compare it in your mind if you need, man, what is this? You need to compare it to something. Think about what happened in Egypt. Verse 4, they became blood. Verse 5, then I heard the angel in charge of the water say, You are just in these judgments, O holy one. You who are and who were. For they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets. And you've given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. And the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat. And they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues. Because they refused to repent and glorify him. Remember that verse. It'll come in handy later. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. And its kingdom was plunged in the darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony. And cursed the God of heaven. Because of their pains and their sores. But they refused to repent of what they had done. There it is again. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. And its, waters was, its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. Remember plagues in Egypt. They came out of the mouth of dragon, out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Jesus is coming. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumble, lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder and a Severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, fell on people, and they cursed 
God, there it is again, on account of the plague of hell, because the plague was so terrible. All of that are just great verses for your Christmas cards. If you're still waiting to send those out for family and friends, there's just a bunch of Christmas verses for you right there on the first Sunday of Advent. What is this? Right? Well, here's what you need to do. We need to go back nine weeks. We need to go back nine weeks to the first Sunday of this series, the rules of Revelation. And we've got to remember something we said nine weeks ago. And it's this, that Revelation is apocalyptic literature. So Revelation is apocalyptic literature. Apocalypse, apocalypse the, the word there means revealing. And so the book of Daniel, a lot of the prophets in the Old Testament, they are apocalyptic literature. And so apocalyptic literature is written in a certain kind of way. It, it uses a lot of images and metaphors that you and I are not supposed to take literally. It's trying to describe something for us. That's why John compares these judgments to the plagues in Egypt, because we read this and it just sounds so wild and out there. What in the world is this like? That's just the, the common response of our human minds. And John is saying, listen, if you need a frame of reference, try to compare it to what God did in Egypt. But over and over in this passage, I mean, you're seeing talk about earthquakes. You, you see talks about uh, rivers and, and water turning to blood. There's talk about frogs. There's talk about angels pouring out bowls. What in the world is this? Here's what's happening. Apocalyptic literature uses images and metaphors to help us get ideas across. And it's not to be taken literally. So when you read this, don't read Revelation 16 and say, oh my gosh, an earthquake like, like there's never been one before. What earthquake is that? And then all of a sudden you start to watch the news and try to read around to try to find this earthquake. No, it's not a literal earthquake. See what's happening here. This is apocalyptic metaphor painting a picture that God is turning the world upside down. All of these images, water turning to blood, earthquake, frogs, all of these things. This is all image to try to help us get the idea that before Jesus comes, just before he comes, it will be like God turning the world upside down. Let, let me show you this, just because maybe you don't believe me. Let me show you the clearest example of apocalyptic literature that sounds like, man, the world is falling apart. But it's not literal. It's all metaphor to show us, man, God is up to something. Acts chapter 2, 17-21. Acts chapter 2 is the beginning of Christianity. The Holy Spirit has just been poured out at Pentecost. The, the first Christians, about 120, they are speaking in tongues. And the tongues in Acts chapter 2 are earthly language of other people who are in Jerusalem at this time for the celebration of Pentecost. These Christians go out into the streets of Jerusalem. They're sharing Jesus in all of these other earthly languages. All kinds of people start getting saved. Man, God is moving. Peter looks at what's happening, and it reminds him of the prophecy that the prophet Joel gave in Joel chapter 2. And Peter preaches the first sermon in the history of Christianity, and he starts it by quoting apocalyptic literature. It's on the screen. Look at this. This is Peter 
preaching and he's quoting an Old Testament book, the book of Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Peter is saying this prophecy is being fulfilled right here on the streets of Jerusalem. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Go to the next slide. Look at this. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Peter is saying God is pouring out his spirit right now. God is showing signs and wonders right now. Look at this. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter is looking around and he's saying, oh my gosh, Joel said that in the last days, God's going to pour his spirit out. The last days started when Jesus got up and walked out of the tomb. God is pouring his spirit out right now. Man, God is turning the world upside down. The sun literally was not being turned into darkness. The moon wasn't being turned into blood. Peter is saying, listen, when the Spirit comes like he has right here, y'all, God is turning the world upside down. Do you see this? It's an image to say, man, God is up to something. God is up to something so much that now everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. It's the same thing happening in Revelation 16. But here's the deal. So many people, maybe you guys are in this crowd, so many people, when you read a passage like Revelation 16, you read it and think, man, that's exactly how I thought God would be. I've always heard that God was angry, and this shows it. I've always heard that God hated everybody, and he's just ready to take us all out, and this shows it. I've always heard that God is up in heaven, waiting to see the next time that I mess up so that he can drop the hammer on me, and this shows it. See, some of us, you walk into an environment like this with a view of God like that. A lot of people come to church, this is some of you guys, and you come to church and the idea of God that you have is that God already hates you. How do you make sense of this? How do you make sense of a chapter about God's wrath when, watch this, the Bible says that God is love? Because the Bible says that God is love, not, the, not that he has loving feelings. God is the embodiment of love. How can God be a God of wrath and a God of love at the same time? How in the world do you make sense of a chapter like this? Here's a better way to ask those questions. Why was Jesus born See, here's the deal. You can know the story of Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus and the angels. You can have a nativity scene in your house and have no idea why Jesus came. Like, he just shows up out of nowhere. And so what needs to happen here is you and I, we need to know why Jesus came. We need to know what are we celebrating at Christmas. We need to know who is God we need to understand what is Jesus doing because, watch this, if you don't understand this, and I hear so many church people talk this way, if you don't understand this, you will say things like this, the God of the Old Testament was all anger and wrath, but the God of the New Testament is all love. Have you ever heard that? 
That is heresy. Because here's what you're saying. What you're saying is God in the Old Testament needs to grow up. He has a lot of temper tantrums. He's like Thanos ready to snap his finger, take out half of the earth's population. Jesus is like Captain America, Avengers assemble. He's all love and saves us from the God that's mean all the time. If you're not careful, you will pit the Father against the Son. And the Father is not against the Son. They are one. Amen? So how do you make sense of this? How do you make sense of not just God's wrath in the Old Testament, but God's wrath right here in Revelation 16? We need to unpack this this morning. We've got work to do if we really want to understand why in the world did Christmas happen in the first place and what in the world does this is happening right here in a chapter like this and why in the world is this chapter not telling any of us that God hates you? Why is it still universally true that God loves every single one of us in this room? Even if you're here today, you're not a follower of Jesus. You are loved by God. You are invited into a relationship with God this morning. He's not waiting to drop the hammer on you. He's waiting to pour his love out on you if you will respond to him. Amen? Right? So how do you bring those things together? Here's what I want to see this morning. You don't remember anything else I say, just remember this, okay? The wrath of God flows out of the love of God. Say that again. This is the whole sermon. The wrath of God flows out of the love of God. See, how many of you know that love always has room for correction, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Uh, let me, uh, so parents, you know this. Grandparents, guardians, if you've been around kids at all, you know this. Love for your kids also includes correction for them. Amen? Right? Mom, Dad, can I, have, can I have sugar? Can I have candy for breakfast and cookies for lunch? Can you inject the sugar in my veins? No, I won't do that. Why not? Don't you love me? Right? Have you ever heard that from your kids? Why won't you? Don't you love me? I, listen, it's because I love you that I will not let you have all the candy for breakfast, right? It's because I love you that I will grab you and pull you out of the way of incoming traffic, even if you don't see it coming. In love, there is room. For correction. And that is just as true when it comes to the love of God. See, God's wrath doesn't flow out of anger. God's wrath flows out of love. John 3, 16, everybody knows that verse. For God so what? Love the world. God doesn't hate the world and he's waiting to take it out. Revelation is not going to end with God destroying everything. I hear too many preachers say God is going to destroy everything. This series has been called the beginning of everything. Revelation doesn't end with the end. It ends with a beginning. Right? God's not going to destroy everything when we get to this December the 19th at the end of this book. He makes all things new. God loves the world. See, there's a few things that we need to understand about the wrath of God. If you're taking notes, you can write this one down. Here's this. God's wrath is not destructive. It's purifying. God's wrath isn't destructive. It's purifying. See, how do I know that? If you've still got your Bible open, look at chapter 16, verse 5. Look at this. This is really important. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, here it is right here, you are just. That angel just told us something about God. There it is on the screen. It doesn't say that, God, you have justice in you. No, we're getting something about the character of God here. God is just. It also says that God is holy. What it means is that God is perfect. He's righteous. Every single one of God's actions, including his judgment, judgments, are just. So God's wrath is not his reaction to evil. Do you understand that? Do you ever react to stuff? 
Right? Some of y'all look at me like you don't, like all you do is pray. Anybody ever cut you off in traffic and you react? And in that moment, we're all thankful that you're not the God of the universe, right? Because you would drop the hammer on us all, right? See, see, God's anger, his wrath is not a reaction. Somebody cuts you off in traffic, ticks you off, and then you say things that you de- uh, deny you said at church. That's not what we're talking about here at all. Watch this. God, God's wrath is his settled reaction against sin because God is a holy and perfect just God. So what that means is that God's judgments are not reaction. They are settled, his settled attitude in response to sin. See, if there's a perfect God in the universe, he can't just ignore sin. He can't just shove it underneath the rug. God's judgments are his settled response to sin. And his wrath is always just. just. It's not destructive. It's purifying. Think about it this way. Where are my gardeners this morning? Anybody a gardener? You got a garden at the house somewhere? Anybody? anybody a couple people here. Uh, even if you don't have a garden, you're, you're not a gardener. Have you ever done, guard, uh, ever done yard work and you've had to pull out, up some weeds? Anybody ever done that? We've all done that, right? You got to pull some weeds out of your yard, right? You're not destroying your yard. You're trying to make it look good. You want it to look a certain way. You're trying to purify it. God's judgments, especially these judgments here in Revelation 16, they are God purifying creation. You can think of it as God pulling the weeds of sin out, pulling the brokenness of creation out. This is why Paul in Romans 8 says that all creation groans and longs for the return of Jesus so that it can be made new. In Revelation 15, the four living creatures are what give the angels these seven bowls to pour out these judgment, judgments. And the four living creatures in Revelation symbolize creation. So this is creation wanting to be purified and made new. God's wrath isn't destructive. It's purifying. Here's another thing you need to know about God's wrath. God's love is eternal. His wrath isn't. Let me say that again. God's love is eternal, but his wrath isn't. See, in 15.1, we'll read it again. The angel says, this is the last judgment because with these judgments, look at this, God's wrath, what's it say? It's completed. God's love is eternal, but his wrath isn't. And here's the thing. A lot of times when we think about the wrath of God, the judgment of God, we get this image in our head like it's all fire and brimstone and rivers turning to blood and it sounds horrible. It sounds so scary. Here's the thing. God's wrath might be worse than you think it is. If the only thing you think about the wrath of God is that it's all fire falling from the sky and rivers turning to blood, here's what you need to know. God's wrath might be Worse than you think it is. See, there's something baked into Revelation 16 that I want us to see this morning. But to see what's baked into 16, we got to take a detour to the book of Romans. So these verses are on the screen. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Watch this. Watch what happens here. Watch what the Apostle Paul is going to unfold for us this morning. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Watch this. Watch this. Who, let's, all, let's all read this together so I know you're still awake. Who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Do you see that phrase, suppress the truth? Do you see that? Here's what that means, suppress the truth. Have you ever done something and instantly you feel bad for it? 
Have you ever done something? Two people. Have you ever done something and instantly you feel some regret over it? Anybody? Like, you feel bad about it. You feel regret over it. You, oh, man, I, I shouldn't have done that. That wasn't the right thing to do. You feel regret, shame, remorse. You ever done that? Raise your hand, raise your hand, raise your hand, raise your hand, raise your hand. All right, there's everybody. Where does that come from? Where's that feeling come from? That is a universal experience. Feelings of guilt, remorse, shame. I did something wrong. You go to any place in the world, we may define right and wrong differently, but that is a universal experience. I don't care if you're in Hazard, Kentucky, Haiti, the furthest corner of Africa. It is a universal experience. I do something I should not have done. Something in me says that is wrong. What is that something? What if that something is a person and it is God saying, listen, 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 I'm inviting you away from that. I'm inviting you from darkness to light, light, from death to life. I am inviting you to come to me. What if that universal human experience, your consciousness telling you, man, I shouldn't have done that. What if written on the human heart is a standard that God put on every image bearer and that is your conscience really saying to you, you need to go to Jesus right now. There is freedom for you. There is love for you. That tinge of consciousness, man, I feel bad. I shouldn't have done that. What if that is from God? But here's humanity's response. Humanity's response is to suppress the truth. So what that means is this. Oh, man, I feel bad. I shouldn't have done that. What's on Netflix? Let's just binge Netflix for a couple of hours, and then I won't feel bad. Give it 24 hours, and then I won't even be thinking about it. I call up my buddy. Hey, listen, I did this, and I feel bad about it, but you do this all the time, and you seem okay with it. What do you think? Oh, man, listen, I think you ought to just follow your heart. I think you ought to do, I, I think you ought to you do you and make up your own truth. Listen, if it didn't hurt anybody, what's wrong with it? And we just try to suppress the truth instead of listening to our God, to listening to God speaking through the human consciousness. We suppress the truth. We push it down. I've done that. You've done that. And when that happens, we get Romans, Romans 1, 21 to 24. Watch this. For although they knew God. How, how does every person, no matter what, know God? Consciousness is one. That internal sense of right and wrong, what we just talked about. They neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Watch this. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Meaning we started worshiping anything and everything other than God, even ourselves. Therefore, watch. Watch. Therefore. Because of that, here's what God will do. God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Watch this. Look at me if you don't understand what's happening. Here's humanity. God has been running after humanity, just even in your consciousness, that internal sense of right and wrong. And humanity pushes it down, suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. God, we don't want your way. We want our way. And eventually, God says, if that's what you want, you can have it. And that is the wrath of God. That is the wrath of God. See, the wrath of God, the wrath of God, God here, here's the wrath of God. The wrath of God is God saying, listen, if you don't want me, but instead you want this other thing or this other way, you can have it. 
see, God, out of love, is going after humanity. But here's humanity's response. Suppress the truth. Push it down. Follow your heart. Make your own truth. You do you as long as it, quote, doesn't hurt anybody. And so here we are. We're following our heart. We're being sincere. We're being true to ourselves. And the whole time God is running after us because God is a God of love. God is longing to set us free, bringing us from death to life. But the longer that I run away and I tell him no, the longer God lets that chain go. God says, listen, if that's what you want, I'm going to let you run down that a little bit more. I'm going to let you run down that a little bit more. This is God back in Genesis 3 telling humanity if you do that you will die remember that we want to eat of this tree we want to be like God we want to know good from evil that's what we really need to live and God says listen if you go that way it will kill you and we keep running and running and running and eventually God says listen if that's what you want you can have it Listen to me, the worst thing that God could ever do to any of us is to give us what we really want. Do you hear me? The worst thing that God could ever do is to say, listen, if that's what you want, when I'm running after you, you can have it. I love this quote from a guy named Jason Jackson. He's a pastor in Colorado. God will give give us what we desire most, even if it's not what he desires most. Do you understand that? It is breaking the heart of God, but but God says, listen, if that's where you're going to go, here it is. This is baked all through the Bible. Here it is. John 3, 19. Light has come into the world. There's Christmas. Light has come into the world. But people love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. This is exactly what's baked into Revelation 16. All of these horrible things are happening. God's judgment being described in horrible ways. And there it is in verse 9. They cursed God. They refused to repent over and over in Revelation 16. They refused to repent. Look at me. This is the decision that humanity is making. Does that make sense? Where is God? Why isn't God doing Why would God do this to us? That's the question that we ask all the time. So many times we ask questions like that because we don't want to take responsibility for the sin that we've caused. That's why we ask questions like, where is God when all these bad things happen that we read in Revelation? Church, we already saw God. Revelation 5, he's on the throne. All of these judgments are wars, violence, image bearer, killing. Listen, We live in a culture of death because when you sow death, that is what you reap. Amen? Well, why would God do this to people? Why would God make hell to send people to it? Look at me. That's not why God made hell. Jesus tells us why God made hell. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, I think it's on the screen. He literally says, hell was created for the devil and his angels. We saw it last week in Revelation chapter 14. We saw Revelation 14. It says that every single person who took the mark of the beast, they chose the beast's ways instead of God's ways. They drink the cup of God's fury. They're tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the angels and of the Lord. It's this eternal separation. It's this horrible picture of hell. Why would God send anybody to hell? Look at me. God doesn't send anybody to hell. Hell wasn't created for people. There's a war in Revelation, but the war is not 
between God and people. The war is between the lamb and the dragon. But watch, if you make the way of the dragon your ways, what happens to the dragon will happen to you. And it will break the heart of God. Jesus died so it didn't have to happen. But if you literally think that the way to freedom is your way rather than God's way, and you can have it. So here's what this means. We're almost done. Here's what this means. What this means for us, let's land the plane. What this means for you in this room this morning is that everyone who wants God can have him. Every single person right now within the sound of my voice who wants God, you can have him today. You can have forgiveness from God. You can have the mercy of God. You can have the love of God. You can experience God's forgiveness and freedom today. It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. You can leave today being a son of God, your past, present, future, all made new. You can leave today a citizen of the kingdom. If something inside of you is saying, man, you need God. Listen, you need God. Don't suppress it and push it down. That is the Holy Spirit calling you to life. You can have God if you want him today. Here's why. Because in Jesus, the love of God and the wrath of God meet. In the person of Jesus, the love of God and the wrath of God meet. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, came that first Christmas. Jesus did not come to condemn the world. He came to be condemned for the world. Amen? Look at chapter 16, verse 17. Chapter 16, let's back it up. Let's do it this way. Then they all gathered, verse 16, chapter 16. Then they all gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Here it is, the battle of Armageddon. Satan, the dragon, the beast, the false prophets, they bring all of their forces. Armageddon, Megiddo, it's literally this field in Israel. When I went to Israel a couple of years ago, I went there. You can go to this field. They show up and and they're convinced, oh man, we're going to have this battle. It's the dragon versus Jesus. And so here's the battle of Armageddon. Verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the trumpet came a loud voice from the throne. Hello, summit. We've seen the throne. Who's on the throne? Starts with the J, ends with Jesus. Jesus. Come on, y'all. This ain't hard. It's not rocket science. This is Jesus on the throne. Revelation 4 and 5. He's on the throne. Here's the battle of Armageddon. Satan and all of his forces show up, a voice from the throne. Boy, doesn't even show up to the fight. That's how gangster Jesus is. He doesn't even show up to the fight. He says something from the throne, and look at what he says. It is done. Where in the Bible have you ever heard somebody say something like that? Where in the Bible have you ever heard somebody yell out, it is finished? Where have you heard that before? You heard it thousands of years ago on the cross. Why? Because the moment Jesus was born, Satan knew, listen, if we don't stop this boy, he's going to grow up and he's going to take us all out. That's why he tried to have Herod kill him when he failed at that. Jesus says, it is finished on the cross. Listen, Jesus doesn't need to show up for the battle of Armageddon. There is no battle of Armageddon. Why? Because Jesus has won the war. That's why. Jesus has won the war. John 17, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he's crucified. He drinks the cup, what? Of God's wrath. Jesus drinks all of the cup of God's wrath. Why does he do that? Jesus takes all of God's wrath against your sin on himself so that you will never taste a drop of the wrath of God. You will never experience God's wrath if you're in Jesus. You'll never know what it's like. Why? Because Jesus drank the cup 
for you. Listen, can I just tell you something? You don't want to try to face the wrath of God on your own when Jesus has already dealt with it. Amen? Man, I'm telling you, that's what you want. You want life. You want freedom. It is in Jesus and Jesus alone. So here we are. First Sunday of Advent. We live in this gap between the first and the second coming of Jesus. And so everybody in this room this morning that wants God, you can have him. I'm telling you, it's already been paid. I don't care if all you've ever heard about God was that God wants you to suck it up and be a better person. Jesus did not come, live, bleed, and die, and come back to life so that you can be a better person. Jesus came because you were dead and you need to be brought to life. He came to make you brand new. He came to bring his kingdom into your your heart. Say, Mark, how does that happen? Here's how it happens. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. If you know you need to be saved today, do not suppress the truth and push it down. Here's the worst thing that could ever happen to you. I've heard it say so many times. I used to go to church all the time, and when the preacher would start talking about needing Jesus, it would bother me, and it would bother me, it would bother me. And then I quit going, and now I can hear it, it doesn't even bother me. Are you saved? No, but it just stopped bothering me. I wonder what that means. I wonder if that is God saying, listen, if that's what you want, it's not going to take you where you think it's going to go, but I'll give it to you. Look at me right now. Today, if you know you need Jesus Christ, then run to him. Run to Jesus today. But if you're here, you're a follower of Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, look at me. God is not mad at you. Jesus took all of the wrath of God against your sin. You are perfectly accepted by God right now this morning. That's good news, amen? You are perfectly loved by God this morning. You are a child of God this morning in Jesus because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for your sin. But here's the question. God's settled attitude against sin is that sin will destroy you. It killed Jesus. God God says, listen, it's not going to take you to where you think it's going to go. God's settled attitude against sin is that God hates sin. Here's the question. What's your attitude against it? What is your attitude against sin? Is it just some joke? Is it something that you take light? For too many Christians, we have this list of really big sins. And as long as we're not doing like the really big bad stuff, then we're okay. You know what I'm talking about? Whatever your top five sins are, well, I'm not doing the bad stuff over here, so I'm okay. Don't forget, Revelation starts with a, letter, a list of letters to churches from Jesus. And Jesus tells these churches, you've lost your first love, and if you don't get that love back, I'm going to shut you down. What is your attitude towards sin? Here's the deal. Listen, if you're here today and you have darkness in your life that you know you're hiding, you know God doesn't want you to try to justify this and you're trying to live in this and you're trying to, if you are trying to live one foot on Jesus and one foot on your pet sin, I am telling you, your pet sin could destroy you because it did destroy your Savior but not enough to keep him down. He came back to life. Why? So that this morning you could be set free from it. And so maybe today, you need to stop trying to make some relationship with darkness and fully step into the light, because it's done. Would you pray with me this morning?
And I just want to take a minute here in this moment of, of response and just give you a second to ask the Spirit of God, Holy Spirit, is there anything in my life that I need to repent of? Just ask Him that this morning. Holy Spirit, is there anything in my life that I need to repent of? And here's the thing about repentance. Repentance is specific and it's always freeing. So it's specific. Holy Spirit, I need to confess to you that I am doing this and name it. Holy Spirit, I need to confess to you that I'm trying to cover this up and you name it. Holy Spirit, I need to confess to you this pride in my life, this self-righteousness in my life. Holy Spirit, I need to confess to you this attitude in my life. It doesn't glorify you. It doesn't line up with the fruit of the Spirit. Repentance is not punishment. It's a step to freedom. It's a step out of the darkness and into the light. And so Holy Spirit, right now in this moment of response, I just pray that, that there will be freedom in this room so that everybody who wants you would run to you. So what did God say to you from that and what will you do about it? Here we are, we are in this Advent season and Advent, yes, Advent reminds us about Christmas, but Advent is not simply looking back. If The only thing we do in Advent is remember that Jesus came. We miss Advent. Advent drives us forward. Jesus is coming back. And if that's true, then that needs to impact the way that we live right now. So how will you live differently based on not just what we did today, but in this series, we are going to continue through the book of Revelation um, on through this Advent season. Hey, I want to remind you of a couple of things. Number one, we just started to receive our Christmas offering for 2022. Uh, this offering will go to outreach, especially outreach for our student ministry. Um, in 2022. So just be praying about how God would lead you and your family to give. You can give to the Christmas offering online. If you want to give in person, you can do that as well. We will receive the Christmas offering every week through the Advent season that will wrap up on December the 19th. And so you can give in person. You can give throughout the week online. Uh, you can text the word give to uh, our number. The links to it are actually in the show notes. If you're listening to the podcast, open it up, look at the show notes. Boom, there's a link. Easiest way to uh, be a part of it. And then December the 12th is Christmas at Summit. We want to urge you to invite people to come with you. Whatever service you're in, just begin to think through and ask God, who can I invite? Share it on social media. Help spread the word December the 12th, 9.30 or 11. And then that night, December 12th at 6, is our kids' Christmas musical. The Wonder of Christmas. All kinds of great things coming up, um, especially on December 12th. In the morning for our service, 9.30 or 11, bring people with you. Come back 6 o'clock that night for the kids' Christmas musical. It's going to be fun. Hey, thanks for listening so much to the podcast.